No kid life, no kid life this morning. Hold it back, kids. <laughs> Hold up, no kid, no kid life. I know we are. Which is a good thing because they love it that much. Which makes for a bad thing because I'm going to have to talk to you for just a moment about kid life. Ah, oh, darn it. Dang it. Normally, normally what happens in this time is kids are dismissed. And so if you're visiting with us, welcome. Thank you for being here. If you've got kids, just hang tight with us this week. Um, we just need to do a little in-house stuff, and I'll tell you about that in a moment. But normally what happens is they're dismissed, and they have a worship time uh, that's specified for them. So our kindergartners through fifth grade, they get to leave and go um, and uh, uh, be there. And so um, and they've got leaders that pour into them and love on them. And so uh, we do sometimes, though, we do have just family worship uh, days. And so what that means is that the kids are in here with us. They stay with us uh, with their families. Today, unfortunately, is not one of those. And what I mean by that is simply this, is uh, Ashley and I have been talking a little bit um, just about the behavior in kid life. Um, I know I hate to do this. Uh, but I've decided, hey, we need your help, parents. All right. We are that serious about Jesus that whenever we do dismiss and they get to go back there and they get to worship and have a good time and they're dancing around and we make it fun and we, as we learn about the Lord, but we need them also to pay attention and to listen and to be obedient. And so this morning, uh, we just think it's, it's good for them to sit in here with us, that you just need to, to be in here with us and kind of maybe get a, uh, just, I don't know, just kind of realigned. So maybe next week we can get back in there and we can worship and we can have fun again. But, but kids, listen, look at me. Kid life, all, all kid lifers, please stand up real fast. You up, your mind, stand up. Kid life, you are in kid life, please stand up. Up, up here real fast. Everybody right here, look at me. Crazy Pastor Scott real fast. Just stand right there. You can stay right there. All right. Can you guys help me out, and can you guys please, when we're back there, man, have a good time. I want you to have fun. That's, our, that's one of our greatest rules, isn't it, Miss Ashley, is to have fun. But also in having fun, we need you to listen and pay attention and, and do what we, we ask you to do as well. Can you guys do that for me? Because I love getting you guys back there and having a good time, and I love having you in here, and, and so we just we want to make sure and, and do that. So can you guys help me from now on? You got this. We'll be good, and you can help me. All right, awesome. Okay, good. Okay, you guys can have a seat. You can have a seat. I'm going to ask you if you would join me as we pray, and then we will jump in this morning. We will jump in here in just a few minutes to John chapter 17 is where we'll start out, and we're going to be at a bunch of different places. But if uh, you'll join me as we pray. Father, we love you. Lord Jesus, we desperately, desperately need you in this place this morning. And so, Father, I just pray, God, that you would uh, move and that you would speak and that you would uh, make your presence known. And, God, I just believe that you've already started to do that. God, that you've already started to move in a mighty way. And so, God, I want to pray for just a moment for that heart here that maybe don't know you as Lord and Savior. God, how amazing would it be that today you save and you rescue and you redeem them from their sin. And so, Father, if there be a heart here like that, God, I just pray you would just start to speak to that heart, that you start to break down walls and you start to draw them to your presence. And, God, that you would rescue them. And, Father, God, for the heart here hurting this morning, God, I pray that you would be that salve that would bring a healing, God, that you would just move in a mighty way just from the ups and downs of life and the, and the beating up of life. And so, God, I just pray that you just move there. And, God, for the heart that's being obedient and longing for more of you, God, that you would reveal all the more who you are. And so, Father, as we look at your word, God, I pray that you just radically change us. Father, that you would do a work on our heart, draw us closer to you. God, shape us and mold us into the image of your Son. Jesus, we need you. God, speak in this place. Shame we pray. Amen. Amen. So, Bibles, John 17, 3. We'll get there shortly. Like I said, you can follow along on the app. If you need to download that, feel free to do that. Uh, the outline will be there as well. But I want to start out, and this, this quote's going to be on the screen here. Um, I was just looking and reading this week, and as I was looking and reading, um, came across a quote that I believe will help kind of 
start us out as well as help us kind of land the plane as we, as we bring this thing in this morning. And so uh, A.W. Tozer, this great theologian, says this. It says, what comes into your minds when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What you think, what comes into your mind when you think about God, whatever it is that enters your mind, whatever it is that, that, that whenever you think of God, whatever that looks like, whatever that means for you in your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And I just love that quote because I believe it, it really just points out it really matters what you think about God. That is very, very important and really, really matters how you view him, how you look at him, what you think of when you think of God, because I believe in that, that will help shape and mold us into who we need to be. And so we all have a right and good belief in in who God is, or maybe you do, maybe you don't, but a, a right and good belief in who God is will help shape and mold us all the more into the image of his son, about the way we think, about the things that we do, about the, uh, all of those type of things. And so what I'm going to try to do over the next 40 minutes is, is attempt to explain God to you. That was a joke. Because from what I've learned, I don't know if I could do it in 40 years and give it due justice to try to explain to you what God is like, who he is, just really the, uh, the, the majesty and the splendor of our God. And so for me, it's been a struggle this week. Like, I, I know I got the questions out to discipleship development leaders a little later than I like to. And it's just been a, it was a struggle for me just to kind of get my head and my heart around, okay, I've got, I've got 30 to 40 minute window to try to tell you or explain to you or break down who God is. And I'm like, it would take me 40 years to do that. And I still probably wouldn't even begin to scratch the surface. And so for me, as I approached the scriptures this week, as I, as I looked at God's word, it was almost like I had that moment where I, I got lost for a minute. I, I, kinda, I couldn't see the forest for the trees. Do you kind of know what I mean when I say that? Like there's all of these like trees out there, but really when they're all together, there's, it's this huge, massive forest. But I got stuck on like one or two, and I just I couldn't work around it. I couldn't get it figured out until finally I said, you know what, enough's enough. I've just got to pick a few things. I'm going to do the best I can with the help of the Holy Spirit to give you what God's put on my heart, and we'll go from there. So the game plan over the next three weeks, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the Godhead. We're going to look at the Godhead, and it's important to know that uh, the Christian view of the Godhead is that God is three distinct persons yet one three distinct persons is what we believe as the christian faith three distinct persons our god is but yet he is one and i can't even begin to grasp that i can't even begin to fully truly understand even what that means and so i could attempt to kind of give you some illustrations like we could go like the water the mist uh uh, and the ice road but the problem is is whenever you do that you've got three separate entities but they're still kind of one from one thing but but they stand alone as separate entities but even when they stand alone as separate entities they're still not one entity that's where I've been this week and it blows my mind how big and how great and how glorious our God is and so to try to stand here this morning and describe and to tell you of that has just has just wrecked me this week but in a good way and what it has done is it's put into perspective and it's helped me, allowed me to focus in a little bit on really how great and grand and glorious our God truly, truly is. So we've got God the Father, we've got God the Son, we've got God the Holy Spirit, three persons, but they are still one. And it's tr- tremendously important in the shape of our Christian heart and our Christian faith that we look at it that way, that we know and that we try to grasp and understand all the more. And so we're going to spend our time this morning talking about uh, God the Father, the person of God the Father. And so I want to just kind of give you fair warning because as I've tried to already illustrate, 
You'll probably walk away with some head cramps this morning, maybe scratching your head, thinking, man, how in the world can I get my heart and mind around this? And I just believe the Holy Spirit will do His work and He'll help us get a bigger picture of who our God is. And so it's expected whenever we try to understand, when we try to focus in and and walk closer to God. We don't unplug and turn off. No, we engage our minds, and we even when it gets difficult and hard. And so we're going to dive in this morning. We're going to grow closer to God, seeking more of who He is, trying to get a greater understanding of who our God truly is. And so our point today, what my hope is this morning that we accomplish is today, is for to show you from the Scriptures that our God is an infinitely powerful yet intentionally uh, personal Father that we can fear and follow. And when I say the word fear, I mean in a good and healthy way because this fear is a response to the splendor and glory of our God with the right perspective and understanding that our God could crush us in a moment if he chooses to, but he loves us instead, that he loves us instead. So my hope and my, that we can get that, get our hearts around that this morning. So uh, first thing we're going to look at, John 17, 3, John 17, uh, chapter 17, verse 3, and this is just the importance of knowing God. Why is it important to know God? Why do we need to know God? And I believe Jesus just outlines it right here, and this is what John 17, 3 says. It says, and this is eternal life. Yes, I want that. Do you not? This is eternal life is how this verse starts out. Give me some of that, right? Eternal life, everlasting life. Life that will never end, but that will continually be there. That will always be there. I want eternal life. So why is it important to know God? Because he's going to outline that in a moment, what that eternal life is. How we can have that, right? I mean, who wants to live forever? Maybe a little bit better than we have it here, but who wants to live forever, right? All of us, we, we want that. Nobody wants to die, No, we fight against it. That's why we take all the vitamins. That's why we run on the treadmill. That's why we do all of those type of things because we don't want to die. What this scripture lets me know is this is eternal life. We can have life everlasting. And this is it. And that they know you. You want eternal life, you've got to know someone. And I just need to discuss here for a moment because this is very, very important. This whole thought of of knowing. It's not just a head knowledge, but it's it's a faith it's more than just, just a, a head knowledge of some facts or some statistics or some, uh, uh, a player sheet of who Jesus is or who God is. It's, it's so much greater than just a knowledge, a head knowledge of who it is. It's knowledge that's moved to action. It's faith. That's what it is. That's what he says here. And this is eternal life, that they know, that they have faith, that they believe what the only true God, one and only God, the only God That's our God, Yahweh, the Holy One, the one and only living God is who our God is. All other gods are dead. All other gods are little G gods. Our God is big G God, and he is massive, and he is majestic, and he is uh, holy, and he is loving, and he is gracious. And we're going to walk through, we're going to look at those uh, uh, attributes of his, but he is the only true God. Every other religion, every other thing out there is is a dead God that is not God. And so you want eternal life. You know that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So I I don't know what you get when you read that verse. But what I get when I read that, it shows us the importance of knowing God is a life or death matter. We can get our treadmill on and eat our green stuff till the day is long, but if you want to live forever and be healthy as you live, and I'm not talking about physical health, I'm talking about a spiritual health that matters so much more than uh, spending 30 minutes on the treadmill. You do your treadmill thing, but I'm talking about, I'm talking about a health that far, out, far outweighs that. 
That's what knowing God is. It's a life or death matter. Now think about that for just a moment with what Tozer said. What comes, to, comes into your minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Why? Because it's life or death. It's everything. It's all-encompassing is what it is. It, it matters that much. It's that big that, 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 that it's life or death. I'm talking about eternal life because the reality is this. We'll live forever. We're all going to live forever. Now, the, the destination upon which we live, either in eternity with him forever, in heaven or separated from him forever in a place called hell, uh, that's, that's dependent upon our relationship with Jesus. But we're all going to live forever. So we're all going to have eternal life. But the greater question is, where with who? And so the importance of knowing God is life or death. So how can we know God? How can we come to know God? And so as I've said the last couple weeks, it's through his word. Through his word. I mean, if you've missed any of that, you can go back and look at it. But as we've looked and we've tore apart and we've dove into what God's word is and what it means and it's him speaking to us, that's how we know him, through his word. And that's one of the first things that we learn about him as he reveals himself. How does he do it? He speaks. He speaks and he reveals himself. Right? Genesis 1.1, you see it. Or Genesis chapter 1, you see it all throughout. Genesis 1. And God said... God speaks and he gives us the ability to understand and to hear him and to follow him and to believe him and to walk in the reality of what he says. So he speaks. Our God is a God that speaks. He is not hidden. He is not uh, mean and deceptive. No, he is a God that lays out his plan and allows us to know everything that we need to know about him. And so God speaks. We see that all throughout the scriptures. And the Lord said, or thus says the Lord, we see it over and over and over on repeat. Old Testament, New Testament, our God is a God that speaks and makes himself known. He creates us in his image and he enables us to communicate with him in relationship. Hebrews 1.1 says it like this, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So God speaks and presses upon the heart of man and as he does that, it gets recorded and we have his, his spoken word today. It's God breathed is what Timothy says. It's, it's, it's literally breathed out. It's inspired by God, not man, but by God. It's, it's, it's infallible. It's perfect. And so he speaks long ago to fathers, to prophets, and he allows it to be recorded. So that's the first way that we can uh, know God. The second way that we can know God is through Jesus. It's through Jesus. Colossians 2, 9 says it this, like this. For in him, who is him? Him here is Jesus for in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity, the whole fullness of God. Jesus was God in the flesh. So through him, for in him, in Jesus, the whole deity, the whole godness of who God is dwells how bodily is what that scripture says. So you want to know God, you know Jesus. You want to know what God is like? Look to Jesus. You want to see how God would respond? Look to Jesus. You know Jesus, you know God. That's how we get to know our God. Hebrews 1, 2 says it like this. But in the last days, he, he being God, has spoken to us by his son. So God speaks through the prophets. God speaks through his son, Jesus. You want to know what God has to say? Look to what Jesus has said. Because all Jesus does is echo the very heart of God. But in these last days, he, God, has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Jesus inherits it all. He gets it all, the inheritance. That's, that's, a, that's a term of power. That's a term of prestige. He is the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 
Jesus was there. Jesus was there and a part of the creative process. Jesus wasn't created, but he was with God. Why? Because they're three in one. Three in one. He was there when creation begins. Jesus was a part of that. Verse 3 goes on and says, He being Jesus, listen to this, is the radiance of the glory of God. He's a reflection of God. Jesus in the flesh is a reflection of God. You want to know what God's like? You want to see what God's like? And, and isn't it crazy how we like play those little games? God of the Old Testament's cranky and upset and hates everybody. And then Jesus comes along and, oh, he's love. And he uh, sprinkles stuff on everybody. And they're all loving now. And they sing Kumbaya and run through the forest. I mean, it's just crazy, isn't it? That's not what the scripture says. No. No, no, no. No, the holiness of our God is revealed in Jesus as well. And you see how he handles the sin. You see how he refers to those who are uh, of the religious type. I mean, is he not uh, very pointed in the conversations that he has with them? I mean, he's very, very pointed. God has not changed. He is the same. And Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Look at what it says. It says the exact imprint of his nature. Exact imprint. You can't separate him. Why? Because Jesus is God. Jesus is Old Testament God. Jesus is New Testament God. Jesus is God right now. Jesus is God, and he is the exact, exact imprint. Exact imprint. It's, just, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing there, right? John 14, 9 says this. I think this, this is a beautiful scripture here as well. John 14, 9, it says this. Jesus said to him, he's having this conversation with some of his disciples, and it comes up with Philip. Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen the... Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Who's the Father? The Father is God. He's referring to his heavenly Father. He's referring to Abba. He's referring to Yahweh, to, to the God of the universe, the creator God, to, to the only living God. He's referring to him. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know what God looks like? Look to Jesus. That's what he's telling him. You want to see God? Look to me. How can you say, show us the Father? He goes in verse 10, he says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus said, I'm not just pulling this stuff out of nowhere. I'm just echoing the very heart of God, what God has said. I'm saying, why? Because we're the same. Because we are one. If you want to know God, look to Jesus every time. Every time. You want to know what his heart's like? You want to know his nature, his character, how he would be, how he would do? Look to Jesus. Verse 11 says, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Disciples, believe what I've told you, or look, look to the evidence. Look to the evidence of what I've said. Test it and see. God isn't opposed to that. Look and see. Read this book. Dive into it. See what it says. Break it apart. Test him and try him. Look and see if what he does say, if it lines up. Has he been consistent? Has he done what he has promised? See if there's error in his way. Jesus says, man, look to what I've said or look to what I've done. Jesus is God in the flesh. He clothes himself in flesh and blood and makes himself known. Jesus is God. That's how you know him. Now, man, I want to play for a moment. For the remainder of the time that we've got together, I just want to just look at his attributes 
And my prayer and my hope is that we get lost in the reality of who our God is. Man, in his massiveness, his splendor, his glory. Oh, that we would just listen for a moment and look as we walk through some of his attributes. And whenever I talk about attributes, an attribute is just the quality or the characteristics that's true about someone. So it's a quality about him. It's a character. It's who he is. It's looking at and knowing God's attributes. And when we do that, it allows us to have a limited understanding of his person. Yeah, and I said that right. Looking at his attributes gives us a limited understanding of his person because he is so much greater. And I just got to pick a few or we would really be in here for, for, for three days talking about his attributes. And so God reveals himself and he allows us to know him deeper. How? By his attributes, about, by who he is. And so the first one I want to look at is his holiness is God's holiness. God's holiness, whenever I say that, it means that he is untouched and he is unstained by the evil in this world. He is absolutely pure and perfect. That's who our God is. So when I say holiness, he is pure and perfect. Holiness means that he is set apart. He is different like nothing we have ever known, seen, or experienced. Man, our God is great. Psalm 99.9 says it like this. It says, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. God is set apart. God is different like nothing we have ever known. And I always love to go to this scripture. One of my favorite scriptures in the whole Bible is in the book of Isaiah. And I just want to read it to you for a moment. So this is a vision that Isaiah has of who God is. In Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 it says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I mean, get a picture of that for a moment. You've got God, King God, on his throne. And as he sits on his throne, the train of his robe, the tail of his robe fills the whole place. The whole place is filled with the train of his robe. The temple is just full. And it says, above him stood the seraphim. These are angels which had six wings. So these angels that were above him had six wings. And with two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. They are in the presence of our God and in the presence of his holiness. They can't even begin to look or gaze upon. So they have covered themselves from his holiness. I mean, as they fly around, and then look at what they say in verse 3. And they called to one another. And this is what they're doing the whole time. So they are flying around with two wings. They've covered themselves, not looking at him, flying around. And this is what they say the whole time. It says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The full of his splendor, full of his greatness. The whole earth, they're in the, they're in the temple with God. And his majesty has filled this place. And all they can do is hide themselves, fly around saying, holy, holy, holy. Just proclaiming who he is. That's all they can do. And I love to just look at this scripture because I know we like to play for a moment. Well, when I die and I get there, this is what I'm going to do. You're going to do nothing. These created angels can't even do anything but do what's in their heart in the presence of God. Holy, holy, holy is he. Man, I ain't going to say a thing to God other than holy. Thank you. Holy you are. God, you are like nothing we have ever known, nothing we've ever experienced, nothing that we have ever seen. God, you are set apart and so different. You are perfect and you are pure. And that's what these angels are doing, flying around the whole time, 
And then look at what else, just in his presence. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. God speaks his holiness. He speaks, and the very place shakes. I mean, this isn't like just like a little tremor, like, like a little um, earthquake-type tremor. No, 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 the very foundation, the threshold shook at him just speaking, and the whole place is filled with smoke. I mean, this is mind-blowing. We need to get out of our 30-something, 20-something, 50-something, 80-something, whatever-something bodies, and we need to go back to our imagination as children and just put yourself there for a moment in Isaiah's place. I mean, can you imagine this picture as he sees the creator of the universe sitting on his throne, his robe, the train of his robe fills the place. He just speaks and it starts to shake. And it fills with smoke. Why? Because he is holy like nothing we have ever known. He is perfect and he is pure. And that's the picture that we see of who our God is. That's his holiness. That's where fear comes from. And when I mean fear, yes, there's a, a, a bit of scared to deathness, but there's also a greater emotion called awe and wonder at the tenacity of our God. And I don't even have English words to try to describe what I'm talking about this morning. Because our language falls woefully short trying to describe this picture and the reality of who our God is in conjunction to His holiness. See, 1 Peter 1.16 tells us that God is holy and that we are to be holy like He is holy. We're set apart from sin unto, unto God and we're called to be a reflection of God and His light in this dark world. So we're to be holy, set apart, different. And that's the connection there. Our God is holy like nothing we've ever known. The second attribute that I want to look at is that of righteousness and justice. This one makes us squirm a little bit. Righteousness and justice, they come from the same root word in the scriptures, same in the original language, which means to be right or just. Righteousness designates the perfect agreement between God's nature and his acts. So who God is and the way that he acts matches up of that of being right and being just every time. And so justice is the way that God legislates his righteousness. And so there's no action that God takes in relation to man that violates any code of his moral justice ever. Psalm 89, 14 says this. It says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. The foundation of your throne. God being right and good is the very heartbeat of who he is. He is always right. He is always good. He is always just. There is no law above God, but there is law in God. There's nothing outside of him of rightness and goodness. He is that period. And it goes on to say, steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. So when you see these kind of words like righteousness and justice, it's kind of that of a, uh, of, of a courtroom. These two words are connect, in connection kind of to handling a legal dispute or a case. So when we talk about God's righteousness or God's justice, I mean, he's a just judge. So one day he will look at us and all of our acts, everything that we've done, our thoughts, our motives, everything will be revealed before him and he will make the call whether or not. Now the good news for you and our church is simply this, is that he doesn't look at the acts of our life and say, okay, well, no, you're not. He doesn't weigh it that way. You've got to have a, there's a meter that he has and if you hit that, hit that number of how many good acts or how many right acts or how righteous your righteousness is, it, it, that's not how he does it. The good news for us church is because we would never, we would never make it. We would never hit enough. The meter would fall woefully short for us. We, our good acts would never outweigh our bad. 
Never. And I don't care how good you think you are. I don't care how nice you are. I don't care how many times you've opened the door or you've left a big tip or you cut granny's grass for free. None of that matters as it comes into weighing out our goodness versus God's holiness. So for us, him is our just judge. Do you know where he, where he casts all of his judgment on? His son, Jesus. See, that's what's so great news about the cross. It's because of Jesus on the cross, he pays a payment that we can never pay. Why? So that we can become righteous and holy in the sight of God. So for those of us in this room who have relationship with Jesus, who have entered into faith with Christ by way of the cross, when God looks at us, what he sees is this, is that of his son. The holiness and righteousness of his son. So I have no works to claim. I have no boastings to bring before him. All I can say is that Jesus has covered me. That I am made righteous not because of my acts, but because of the act of your son. So I am right, good, and holy because of Jesus, not because of Scott. The next thing I want to look at is this is sovereignty. And this always kind of makes us squirm a little bit. Either you're at the place where you love God's sovereignty or you, you don't love it. And so sovereignty just means chief or highest. It's the supreme in power or superior in position to all others. And so God is sovereign. And so the sovereignty of God just simply means this, that God is king over creation. God is in charge and over all of creation. And God is free and able to do what he wants. He is in control of all things at all times. And what we're going to see is Isaiah here in Isaiah 46, 9 is going to contrast God to the Babylonian idols. And look at how he talks about the sovereignty of God. Isaiah 46, 9 says this. It says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. So our God knows the end. Our God knows the beginning. God can do that. Why? Because he is in control of the beginning and he's in control of the end. He has the supreme power. There is nothing that upsets, nothing that overthrows, nothing that confuses him. We can try to do whatever we want to to offset the plans of God and we will fall horrifically short. Why? Because God is sovereign in control of all things at all times. Nothing is outside of his reach. Nothing frustrates or upsets him. He is sovereign and in control. He goes on to say this in verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. He's even saying, I've got control of things that haven't been done yet. Like like whatever circumstance or situation that you're in, he's like, "I'm, I'm already there tomorrow. I'm in the middle of that. I am sovereign and working, and I've got a plan and a purpose. I'm in control of all things at all times, and nothing upsets me. Saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Praise God for that, right? That God isn't just flippantly throwing things out like, God, America's really struggling now. Jesus, what do you think we should do? Uh, Holy Spirit, come here, come here. Huddle up, boys. I mean, that's ridiculous. God doesn't do that. God's working a plan. God's got a purpose. And though it may seem like it's a little shaky at times, though it may seem like it's going to fall apart at times, God is working a purpose what, for his glory and for his honor. And when we look through the eyes of sovereignty, through that filter, and we realize that God is already there working in control of everything, no matter how chaotic and crazy it is, knowing that he's doing a greater work in us to prepare us and to, to change us and to shape us more to the image of his son. And we can rest in that sovereignty and that reality of his rule and reign. So God is sovereignty. God is sovereign. And that's encouraging for us. This should be very encouraging. The next thing I want to look at is this, is that God's eternal. We're going to be in Isaiah 44, 6 here. 
But God is eternal. And whenever I say that God is eternal, what I mean is this, is that there has never been a time when God has not existed. Try to get your mind around that for a second. There has never been a time when God has not existed. He has no beginning and no end. He was not created. He has just always been. And so the struggle for us is this, is that there's a creation date. There was a creation date for every single, yeah, yeah, every single one of us in this room. November 23rd, 1983 is when Scott started. That's whenever he spoke me into existence. November 23rd, 1983, and every single one of us in this room has a start date, not God. Well, because he's eternal. He has always been. He's the uncreated one. Because whoever creates God, well, that's now God. Like, you get that? Because that's just the definition of who God is. God is for always and forever has been. There's never been a moment without him. And so that's what's so hard for us to grasp and understand. No, day one, and God spoke, let it be, and it happens. But that's just when God decided to start something for us, not for himself. Because he has always been. There's never been a moment when he has not. Why? Because he's eternal. Isaiah 44, 6 says this. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel. There's God speaking again. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no other gods. Besides me, there is no other God. So when God claims to be first, what he is doing is indicating that he precedes the first events of creation and he will continue as the sovereign ruler over creation until the very last event. That's what he's saying. There's just a start time. I, I am the first. I was there before the first is what he's saying. There's never been a moment when God hasn't existed and we just can't get our hearts around that because we are, we, we are so limited. We have a start date. We have an end date. God has neither because he's always been. Now do you see why like a day is like a thousand years to him? Well, because, because there's no time. He doesn't wear a watch. Our God has no need for a watch. Why? Because he's already there always. He, he's eternal. He doesn't need to keep up with time. Why? Because he, he, he just has one. And I don't even know what that means. But I just know he's that big and he's that grand and he's that glorious. So these are temporal categories of, of first and last, and they're related to the reliability of God always being. So when we see that there in Isaiah, that's what he's meaning. Genesis 1 is just when God decided to create, but God has always been, and God will always, always, always be. The next attribute I want to look at is that of immutability. God is immutable. And, and what I mean by that is simply this, is that he never changes in his nature or purposes. Ah. <sighs> So what that means, church, is this, is that we won't have a revised version of this ever. Why? Because he has spoken, and what he says he means, and he's not going to change it. He's immutable. He's not going to change his mind. He's not going to be like, oh, shucks, 2020, I forgot about 2020. Holy Spirit, why didn't you tell me about 2020 coming? Well, they've got this thing down there, and they're kind of struggling with it, our little created beings, and they're, oh, they're so cute, aren't they? Look at them. And they've got this thing going on, and uh, we just need a revi revision of this real quick so we can kind of help, help them out. No, 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 no. No, he, he's unchanging. His word stands. I mean, thank God for that, right? I mean, how many revisions and laws, how many revisions and things and speed limits and stuff and streets and roads? I mean, we can never get it right on the first time, can we? None of us. But not God. God got it right. He is immutable, unchanging. Hebrews 6, 17 says it like this. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise of the unchangeable character of his purpose. God is unchangeable. 
unchangeable character for his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Oh, do you get that? Not us. I mean, we're liars. We'll lie in a minute, won't we? I mean, if we need to change up something, or if we need to make something fit our, our mold, or if we need to uh, get something right, or just knock it out of the park, or whatever, we'll, I mean, if we have to, we'll lie. We've got to do whatever we've got to do. Oh, we're fallen. We're sinful, but not God. It says that he doesn't lie. That's, that goes against his character and his nature is to lie. It's impossible for him to do that. He goes on and says this, Who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragements to hold fast to the hope set before us. What that says is this, church, is that God can be trusted. That's what the author of Hebrews is telling us. He can be trusted. He will and do, and he will accomplish what he has said. He can be trusted to keep his word. He never changes. Never changes. The next attribute I want to look at, and this is where it gets really, really fun, is his omniscient. His omniscience. And what I mean by that is simply this, is that God knows all things, present and future, nothing, nothing takes him by surprise. See how all this just kind of fits right nice and neat in his sovereignty, in his control, in his awareness. God is omniscient. He knows all things, past, present, and future. Job 34, 21 says this. It says, for his eyes are on the ways of a man, and he shall see what all of his steps. God is aware. God is all-knowing. And this attribute of God just blows me away. It blows me away in a couple ways. One, if you look at Jesus, the thing that just would freak me out about Jesus if I was hanging around him, which it should freak me out right now because I still get to hang around him just in a different way. But if I was walking the time he was walking, I don't know if you've picked up on this in Scripture, but like Jesus even knew their thoughts. Like Jesus answers people's thoughts. Why? Because he's omniscient, because he knows so he's at a Pharisee's house, and he's there, and they're, they're dining. And as they're dining, the, the Pharisee never offered Jesus anything to wash his feet or to clean him up there. And so this woman comes in and begins to wash his feet. And the Pharisee thinks in his mind, if Jesus only knew who was washing his feet, that dirty, dirty no good. You know what I'm saying? And what does Jesus do? He responds. Homeboy didn't even speak it out loud. He's thinking it in his mind, and Jesus responds to the man's thoughts. I mean, is that not freaky? I mean, that's crazy. Like, if I'm around Jesus, basketball, basketball, they don't have basketball. Camels, 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 camels. I mean, I, I need a new camel with some high, high, uh, high rims and, I mean, things and, and, and new tail. I mean, I, I'm, I'm like, I don't know. I mean, what do you do with that? I mean, he can read your thoughts. Why? Because he's omniscient. Because he's all-knowing. He knows what we think. He knows the motive of our hearts. That's what he knows. He's aware of the longing of our heart even now in this moment. It blows me away. And the second way it blows me away that he is all-knowing is that God knew our sin, our past, our present, and our future sin. And what does he do? He still offers us salvation. I don't know if you've ever got this. But what will blow you away and put you on your knees quicker than anything is the fact that the day that Jesus saves you, he knew that you would still rebel. And what does he do? He does it anyways. Huh. Oh, thank you, God. He knew that we would rebel and that we would say no and that we would mock him even in our salvation, in our sin, and he still dies for us. You can do that to me one time, maybe twice. Okay, I've got the compassion gift. Three or four times. My limit's five. Not God. He knew it and he still, he is omniscient. The next attribute is omnipresence. 
God's omnipresence. God is everywhere at all times, and this will blow your mind even more. Jeremiah 23, verse 23 says this. says, I am a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away. He says, I'm present. Can a man hide himself in a secret place so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? So since God is everywhere at all times, it's crazy to think that we can hide from him. So just let this set in for a moment. Like, like we're one-dimensional, right? Like, we're just, we're here in this dimension. But, but God, doesn't, God doesn't work that way. He doesn't associate that way. So what's crazy is that God's still in yesterday, all the while being here today, and he'll be very present tomorrow if tomorrow comes. Let me just pick that up for a moment. Gosh. God is present in this moment, all the while being where you're going to be tomorrow. All the while being everywhere at all times. Why? Because he's omnipresent everywhere at all times. And there is more than enough of him to go around. More of him and enough, enough of him to go around. Like he doesn't just show up at New Life at 9 o'clock on a Sunday morning. No, he's at Hope. He's down here at the end of the road with, I can't even think of Nate's church. Nate's a great pastor down here at the end of the road on the left. Nate's a godly man. He is there with, with them as their meeting. All the while over at Lake Bowen, over at, at Buck Creek, over at, um, down here at First North. God is everywhere at all times. His name being raised high. Him in the presence of his people always because he is everywhere at all times. And so I just want to encourage you for a moment because if you ever feel distant from God, if you just get this in your heart for a moment, his omnipresence, feel distant. Maybe it's not God that's moved. Does that make sense? Maybe the reason why you feel distant or you feel like you're alone or you feel like he's not present is not because he's moved, because he's everywhere at all times and he is aware. Maybe it's our heart has rebelled and ran. The next thing I want to look at is this as we wind this down is his, his omnipotence. His omnipotence. What I mean by that is this is that God is all-powerful. He has more than enough strength to do anything that he wants, anything. There's nothing off limits. And so we see God's omnipotence in this. In Genesis 1, he has the power to create. God speaks and the earth bursts forth. God just speaks. Like, I can't even make a good representation of the earth out of Play-Doh. And he just talks and it happens. And you see this in Jesus all the time too, don't you? Like the disciples are in the boat and they're going to cross to the other side. And as they go across the other side, there's a storm and they freak out. And they wake Jesus up. And like, Jesus, Jesus, we're going to die. And what does Jesus do? He's like, oh, you have little faith. Stop. I mean, it's like he's got Siri on repeat before Siri's there. Hey, Siri, please dim the lights. That would have been a cool illustration. Next time. Let me make a note of that. But, but you know what I'm saying? I mean, like, like God just speaks and the storm stops. It, do we have any sci-fi people? This isn't like, I'm not going to slam you, I promise. Like, I, I watch weird stuff sometimes too. Okay, good. Sci-fi people, good. Like, like any of like those demon possession movies? I like, yeah, like, like now this is fine. They scare me. And the reason, like, I'm not like an easily scared guy, but the reason why they scare me is like, like, like that junk can be real life. You know that, right? Have you read the Bible? Like, that can happen. And so the, the crazy thing that just blows my mind about God is, 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 or about Jesus is simply this. He walks into a place and there's demon-filled people. He has a conversation not with the people, but with the demons. What do the demons do? Oh, Jesus, are you here to destroy us at, this, at, the, at, the at the not appointed time? No, in the pigs, off the cliff. I mean, you watch one of those sci-fi movies and the priest comes in. You know that boy's going to get work, don't you? 
I mean, he's gonna, if he leaves with his clothes on, it's been a good day for that guy. I mean, that just scares me to death. Not Jesus. Why? Because they know who they're dealing with. Well, because he is all-powerful. That's who our God is. He is all-powerful. And so Jesus wins. Like one of the stories that I just love to tell my little guy, he's older now, I need to start with my, my younger one, but one of the stories I just love to tell was the one at the very end when Jesus comes riding in on a white horse. His eyes are glowing flames. His, his mouth's like a sword. And we have the last battle, the battle of Armageddon. What happens? It's not like this big fight, this epic fight of, of good and evil and all. Oh, they get a couple blows in. No, no, no. Jesus comes riding in on a white horse, eyes of flames, tongue of sword, tattoo on his thigh, and he just says, it's finished. And that's it, church. Man, I would love to tell my little boy that story. He's like, Dad, tell me the horse story again. I mean, that is phenomenal. Is it not? Why? Because he is all-powerful. And evil only does what God allows it to do. His sovereignty again. God is in control of it. I mean, you see it in the book of Job as Satan approaches. It's because God allowed him to approach. You see it, in the, you see it with Jesus and Peter. Oh, oh Peter, by the way, um, uh, Satan has asked for you. Well, what would you tell him, Jesus? I'm just praying for you. Can you do a little bit more than that? I mean, that's where I would be. But no, 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 no. Not Jesus. Why? Because he is all-powerful. And evil can only do what God says is allowable. Because he's all-powerful. Hebrews 1, 3, he, his preservation of all things. Psalm 37, 23 through 24 shows that he cares for us all because he is all-powerful. And so all of us as his people, we have access to that power. We have him living in us and we have been invited to come before the throne. And the last one I want to look at is this, is love. An attribute of God is love. And so God is not love like we define love today because we have polluted it and we have made it something that it's not. No, God is unconditional love. He's not love based on the loveliness or merit of an object that love gets placed upon. That's not God. John 3.16 says it like this. You know it, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There's that eternal life again. And so because of God's love that he pours out upon us, <coughs> he sends his son to the cross to die for us. So his love is perfect. His love is complete. His love is committed and all in regardless. And that's what's crazy is God lays himself vulnerable. And he says, I'm going to love you. I'm going to value you to the point of where I kill my son for you. And what happens? We can reject. Oh, how this world rejects over and over and over, is it not? Oh, how we reject and have nothing to do with. How we love our sin and run to it. But this is love at its purest sense. It's not like we define it in our world. It's not, what am I going to get out of you? or what, How is this going to benefit me? But no, rather, how can I benefit you and give for you no matter what? Husbands, just if we would live that way with our wives, gosh, what God could do through our marriages. See, it's a love that is put on display. It's Jesus laying down his life for us. And see, the thing we've got to understand about love, church, is this, is that love is not just turning a blind eye or having a bless their little heart attitude. No, 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 that's not love. That's hate. That's what that is. No, love confronts and holds accountable. It's not just let things go. No, no, that, that's not love. No, no, love is I'm going to step in. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to be committed to you regardless if you use me like a doormat or not. And then the second thing about love that we need to talk about is love and holiness and how they go hand in hand because what we think of when we think of holiness and the wrath of God and it freaks us out as a church, you're not, you're not, you don't really believe that. Yes, I believe that because you can't have love without wrath. They go hand in hand, and that's an attribute and a characteristic of, of who God is. And because he is love, there is wrath and holiness in him. 
And so we're afraid to talk about these two attributes together because we're afraid that it might make us look backwards or make, may make God uh, unappealing to people. And so the way that I would illustrate it, and I got to illustrate it this, this past Wednesday, is this, is, is, is there are people in my, my life that I absolutely love and adore. I mean, this kind of looks like I'm all in. Like the girl sitting in the back and my two little guys. I mean, like I would, I'm, I'm, boo, I'm all in. You hear me? With my boys, like I, I, and I would illustrate it like this. So the middle of the night, we're there sleeping and somebody tries to get in, uninvited. Uh-huh. I spring to action. Why? Because I have ferocious love for that little boy, those two little boys and that girl. And whoever comes into my house in the middle of the night uninvited, I'm going to have to do whatever I've got to do to protect them because God has given me them and because of my love for them, I'm going to react in a way that's going to be, be just and right to protecting and guarding what I love. And so, like, I'm not a fighter, right? Like, I'm, I'm a lover. Like, I'm not a fighter. I've got a gun. I can use it if I need to. Only if you come in uninvited in the middle of the night, like 3 o'clock or something, and I'm unaware of it, I will do whatever I have to do. If I have to start a prison ministry because you've come against me and my family and my, the ones that I love, I will gladly go to prison for them. So how does an interview start with, with those that, that watch my kids? It's, it's um, just know I'm not afraid to go to prison if I need to. All right, we good? So just know what you've got here is precious and valuable. Well, is that not the heart of God? Because he is love, whatever is violated, it's his. The just and good and right response is that of wrath. Especially when he takes it over and over and over and he allows and he makes a way. So God is love because where there is love, there is wrath. Where love is violated, there is wrath. Romans 5, 8, I read a little bit last week. But God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's love in action. So to close this, I think Franklin's going to come up. We're going to take of, of communion here in a moment, the elements of the cross. And so I just want to close the way that I started. A.W. Tozer, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And so I just pulled off some random facts this morning, and I want to read to you for just a moment. I want to read to you about the vastness and the beauty and the majesty and the bigness of our God. I just want to talk to you for a moment about the universe, the very universe that we live in. If you could put 1.2 million Earths inside the sun, if we could physically do that, 1.2 million of the planets that we live in inside the sun, you would still have room for 4.3 million moons. Get your mind around that for a second, church. You think your four-hour trip to Myrtle Beach is bad. I mean, that is massive, is it not? If we could put 1.2 million Earths inside the sun, we'd still have room for 4.3 million moons. The sun is 865,000 miles in diameter. Gosh. I mean, the old changes you'd have to have just to get there, or get around it. 865,000 miles in diameter. 93 million miles from the Earth is where the sun is located. The next nearest star is five times larger than the sun. Wow. The moon is 211, 463 miles away. It would take us 27 years to walk there. 27 years to walk to the moon. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second to reach the moon, and it only takes one and a half seconds. You feel how small you are this morning? How insignificant we are? 
the North Star, you know, the real big, bright, shiny one that you always look up in the night and see, is 400 trillion miles away. I don't even know how many zeros that is. 400 trillion miles away, the North Star. Bellaquise is this galaxy. It's 880 quadrillion miles away. That's an 880 followed by 15 zeros. That galaxy, its diameter is 250 million miles, which is greater than our Earth's orbit. The diameter of that galaxy, 250 million miles, which is greater than us rotating around the sun. Oh, feel how small we are. If you could count the stars in the Milky Way, if you could do it one star a second, it would take you 2,500 years to count them. In, our, in the Milky Way, it would take you 2,500 years to count the stars if you did it one second apiece. Isaiah 40, 25 through 26 says this, Who will you compare me to? Who is my equal? This is God speaking. Ask the Holy One. Look up and see who created these. He brings out the starry host by number. He calls them by name because of His great power and strength. Not one of them are missing. Oh, church, if we could get our hearts and our minds around the reality of how small we are and how big He is. And in His bigness, He initiates relationship with us by speaking and sending His Son. So I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what God stirred in your heart. I don't know what He's spoken to you. But my prayer, my hope is that there's a little bit of fear mixed with splendor and wonder and glory of God all mixed in together, which wells up in us the heart and response of worship. Man, that we would get a good and right picture of who God is. Now do you see why it matters, what comes to mind when we think about God, how that's the most important thing about us? Because if it's a good and right understanding of who God is, then our heart will be shaped and molded into the image of His Son. And then we get to be little reflections of who He is in this world. I mean, we could talk for years about how great our God is. We could talk for years about each one of these attributes and not even scratch the surface. So I don't know what God stirred in your heart this morning. I don't know what He's saying to you. But what we're going to do is we're going to enter into a time of worship as we have all morning. And we're going to take of the elements of the cross. And in Corinthians chapter 11, Paul gives instructions. He says, when you come to do this, that you need to search your heart. You need to check yourself to make sure that you don't partake of the elements in an unworthy manner. Simply meaning this, that there's open rebellion in your heart against God. Because the reality is, it's not one of us is worthy to take of that. Of the elements of one of us is worthy. But we are worthy and found worthy in Jesus Christ. So one, the table is for believers. Two, it's for those that are walking in a worthy manner, in relationship with Christ, repentant of sin. So Franklin's going to play for a few minutes, and as he plays, this is just going to be a time of just introspect. If you need to check your heart, if you need to check yourself, man, is there sin, is there open rebellion? God, am I just playing the game? Am I just doing church? Am I not serious? Do I not have a bright picture of who you are? Then this is going to be a time just to come and to pray and say, God, break my heart over my sin. To search yourself, to check yourself, to make sure and you're following after Jesus, one that you're his, and two, that you're not living in open rebellion.
So what he's going to do is play. You guys can, you can come. You can sit at your seats and pray. The altar is open. And then after a few minutes, what we'll do is we'll gather together. And I'll, we'll come and we'll take of the elements, go back to our seat, and we'll partake of them together as the church. So you respond as God leads this morning, whether in your seat, whether you want to come and pray. You be obedient to Jesus in this moment.